Book Eleven, Chapter One of *The League of the Scarlet Pimpernel*. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sarah Luann. *The League of the Scarlet Pimpernel* by Baroness Orczy. Book Eleven: A Battle of Wits, Chapter One. What had happened was this. Tournefort, one of the ablest of the many sleuth-hounds employed by the Committee of Public Safety, was out during that awful storm on the night of the 25th. The rain came down as if it had been poured out of buckets, and Tournefort took shelter under the portico of a tall, dilapidated-looking house somewhere at the back of Saint-Lazare. The night was, of course, pitch dark, and the howling of the wind and beating of the rain effectually drowned every other sound. Tournefort, chilled to the marrow, had at first cowered in the angle of the door, as far away from the drought as he could, but presently he spied the glimmer of a tiny light some little way up on his left, and taking this to come from the concierge's lodge, he went cautiously along the passage, intending to ask for better shelter against the fury of the elements than the rickety front door afforded. Tournefort, you must remember, was always on the best terms with every concierge in Paris— they were, as it were, his subordinates. Without their help, he never could have carried on his unavowable profession quite so successfully. And they, in their turn, found it to their advantage to earn the good will of that army of spies, which the revolutionary government kept in its service, for the tracking down of all those unfortunates who had not given complete adhesion to their tyrannical and murderous policy. Therefore, in this instance, Tournefort felt no hesitation in claiming the hospitality of the concierge of the squalid house wherein he found himself. He went boldly up to the lodge. His hand was already on the latch when certain sounds which proceeded from the interior of the lodge caused him to pause and to bend his ear in order to listen. It was Tournefort's métier to listen. What had arrested his attention was the sound of a man's voice, saying in a tone of deep respect— Bien, Madame la Comtesse, we'll do our best. No wonder that the servant of the Committee of Public Safety remained at attention, no longer thought of the storm, or felt the cold blast chilling him to the marrow. Here was a wholly unexpected piece of good luck. Madame la Comtesse? Peste, there were not any such left in the Paris these days. Unfortunately, the tempest of the wind and the rain made such a din that it was difficult to catch every sound which came from the interior of the lodge. All that Tournefort caught definitely were a few fragments of conversation. "'My good Monsieur Bertin,' came at one time from a woman's voice, "'truly I do not know why you should do all this for me.' And then again, "'All I possess in the world now are my diamonds. They alone stand between my children and utter destruction.' The man's voice seemed all the time to be saying something that sounded cheerful and encouraging, but his voice came only as a vague murmur to the listener's ears. Presently, however, there came a word which set his pulses tingling. Madame said something about gentilly, and directly afterwards, "'You will have to be very careful, my dear Monsieur Bertin. The chateau, I feel sure, is being watched.' Tournefort could scarce repress a cry of joy. "'Gentilly?' Madame la Comtesse? The Chateau? Why, of course, he held all the necessary threads already. The ci-devant Comtesse de Soucy, a pestilential aristo if ever there was one, had been sent to the guillotine less than a fortnight ago. His Chateau, 
situated just outside Gentilly, stood empty, it having been given out that the widow Susie and her two children had escaped to England. Well, she had not gone, apparently, for here she was, in the lodge of the concierge of a mean house, in one of the desolate quarters of Paris, begging some traitor to find her diamonds for her, which she had obviously left concealed inside the chateau. What a haul for Tournefort! What commendation from his superiors! The chances of a speedy promotion were indeed glorious now. He blessed the storm and the rain which had driven him for shelter to this house, where a poisonous plot was being hatched to rob the people of valuable property, and to aid a few more of those abominable aristos in cheating the guillotine of their traitorous heads. He listened for a while longer, in order to get all the information that he could on the subject of the diamonds, because he knew by experience that those perfidious aristos, once they were under arrest, would sooner bite out their tongues than reveal anything that might be of service to the government of the people. But he learned little else. Nothing was revealed of where Madame la Comtesse was in hiding, or how the diamonds were to be disposed of once they were found. Tournefort would have given much to have at least one of his colleagues with him. As it was, he would be forced to act single-handed and on his own initiative. In his own mind, he had already decided that he would wait until Madame la Comtesse came out of the concierge's lodge, and that he would follow her and apprehend her somewhere out in the open streets, rather than here, where her friend Bertine might prove to be a stalwart as well as a desperate man, ready with a pistol whilst he, Tournefort, was unarmed. Bertine, who had, it seemed, been entrusted with the task of finding the diamonds, could then be shadowed and arrested in the very act of filching property which by decree of the state belonged to the people. So he waited patiently for a while. No doubt the Aristo would remain here under shelter until the storm had abated. The sound of voices died down, and an extraordinary silence descended on this miserable abandoned corner of old Paris. The silence became all the more marked after a while, because the rain ceased its monotonous pattering, and the sighing of the wind was stilled. It was, in fact, this amazing stillness which set Citizen Tournefort thinking. Evidently the Aristo did not intend to come out of the lodge to-night. Well, Tournefort had not meant to make himself unpleasant inside the house, or to have a quarrel just yet with the traitor Bertine, whoever he was, but his hand was forced, and he had no option. The door of the lodge was locked. He tugged vigorously at the bell again and again, for at first he got no answer. A few minutes later he heard the sound of shuffling footsteps upon creaking boards. The door was opened, and a man in night attire, with bare, thin legs and tattered carpet slippers on his feet, confronted an exceedingly astonished servant of the Committee of Public Safety. Indeed, Tournefort thought that he must have been dreaming, or that he was dreaming now— for the man who opened the door to him was well known to every agent of the committee. He was an ex-soldier who had been crippled years ago by the loss of one arm, and had held the post of concierge in a house of the Rue des Paradis ever since. His name was Grosjean. He was very old, and nearly doubled up with rheumatism, had scarcely any hair on his head or flesh on his bones. At this moment he appeared to be suffering from a cold in the head, for his eyes were streaming, and his narrow, hooked nose was adorned by a drop of moisture at its tip. In fact, for old Grosjean looked more like a dilapidated scarecrow than a dangerous conspirator. Tournefort literally gasped at the sight of him, and Grosjean uttered a kind of croak, intended, no doubt, for complete surprise. "'Citizen Tournefort!' he exclaimed. "'Name of a dog! What are you doing here at this hour and in this abominable weather? Come in! Come in!' he added, and, turning on his heel, he shuffled back to the inner room, and then returned, carrying a lighted lamp, which he set upon the table. 
Emily left a sup of hot coffee on the hob in the kitchen before she went to bed. You must have a drop of that. He was about to shuffle off again when Turnifor broke in roughly. None of that nonsense, Grosjean. Where are the Aristos? The Aristo citizen? queried Grosjean, and nothing could have looked more utterly, more ludicrously bewildered than did the old concierge at this moment. What Aristos? Bertine and Madame la Comtesse, retorted Turnifor gruffly. I heard them talking. You have been dreaming, citizen Turnifor, the old man said with a husky little laugh. Sit down and let me get you some coffee. Don't try and hoodwink me, Grosjean, Turnifor cried now in a sudden access of rage. I tell you that I saw the light. I heard the aristos talking. There was a man named Bertine, and a woman he called Madame la Comtesse, and I say that some devilish royalist plot is being hatched here, and that you, Grosjean, will suffer for it if you try and shield those aristos. But, citizen Tournefort, replied the concierge meekly, I assure you that I have seen no aristos. The door of my bedroom was open, and the lamp was by my bedside. Emily, too, has only been in bed a few minutes. You ask her. There has been no one, I tell you. No one. I should have seen and heard them. The door was open, he reiterated pathetically. We'll soon see about that, was Turnifor's curt comment. But it was his turn to indeed be utterly bewildered. He searched, none too gently, the squalid little lodge through and through, turned the paltry sticks of furniture over, hauled little Emily, Grosjean's granddaughter, out of bed, searched under the mattresses, and even poked his head up the chimney. Grosjean watched him, wholly unperturbed. These were strange times, and friend Turnifor had obviously gone a little off his head. The worthy old concierge calmly went on getting the coffee ready. Only when presently Turnifor, worn out with anger and futile exertion, threw himself, with many an oath, into the one armchair, Grosjean remarked coolly, "'I tell you what I think it is, citizen. If you were standing just by the door of the lodge, you had the back staircase of the house immediately behind you. The partition wall is very thin, and there is a disused door just there also. No doubt the voices came from there. You see, if there had been any aristos here—' he added naively. They could not have flown up the chimney, could they? That argument was certainly unanswerable, but Turnifor was out of temper. He roughly ordered Grosjean to bring the lamp and show him the back staircase and the disused door. The concierge obeyed without a murmur. He was not in the least disturbed or frightened by all this blustering. He was only afraid that getting out of bed had made his cold worse. But he knew Turnifor of old— a good fellow, but inclined to be noisy and arrogant, since he was in the employ of the government. Grosjean took the precaution of putting on his trousers and wrapping an old shawl around his shoulders. Then he had a final sip of hot coffee, after which he picked up the lamp and guided Turnifor out of the lodge. The wind had quite gone down by now. The lamp scarcely flickered as Grosjean held it above his head. "'Just here, citizen Turnifor,' he said, and turned sharply to his left." but the next sound which he uttered was a loud croak of astonishment. "'That door has been out of use since I've been here,' he muttered. "'And it certainly was closed when I stood up against it,' rejoined Turnifor, with a savage oath. "'Or, of course, I should have noticed it.' Close to the lodge, at right angles to it, a door stood partially open. Turnifor went through it, closely followed by Grosjean. He found himself in a passage which ended in a cul-de-sac on his right— on the left was the foot of the stairs. The whole place was pitch dark save for the feeble light of the lamp. 
The cul-de-sac itself reeked of dirt and fustiness, as if it had not been cleaned or ventilated for years. "'When did you last notice that this door was closed?' queried Turnifor, furious with the sense of discomfiture, which he would have liked to vent on the unfortunate concierge. "'I have not noticed it for some days, citizen,' replied Grosjean meekly. "'I have had a severe cold and have not been outside my lodge since Monday last. But we'll ask Emily,' he added more hopefully." Emily, however, could throw no light upon the subject. She certainly kept the back stairs cleaned and swept, but it was not part of her duties to extend her sweeping operations as far as the cul-de-sac. She had quite enough to do as it was, with Grandfather now practically helpless. This morning, when she went out to do her shopping, she had not noticed whether the disused door did or did not look the same as usual. Grosjean was very sorry for his friend Turnifor, who appeared vastly upset— but still more sorry for himself, for he knew what endless trouble this would entail upon him. Nor was the trouble slow in coming, not only on Grosjean, but on every lodger inside the house, for before half an hour had gone by, Turnifor had gone and come back, this time with the local commissary of police and a couple of agents, who had every man, woman, and child in that house out of bed and examined at great length, their identity books searchingly overhauled, their rooms turned topsy-turvy, and their furniture knocked about. It was past midnight before all these perquisitions were completed— no one dared to complain at these indignities put upon peaceable citizens at the mere denunciation of an obscure police agent. These were times when every regulation, every command, had to be accepted without a murmur. At one o'clock in the morning, Grosjean himself was thankful to get back to bed, having satisfied the commissary that he was not a dangerous conspirator. But of any one even remotely approaching the description of Cidavon Comtesse de Soucy, or of any man called Bertine, there was not the faintest trace." End of Book 11, Chapter 1 Recording by Sarah Luann